We have some exciting news to share. Future Hindsight is now in partnership with Lyceum, a new audio platform for the curious and creative to listen, learn, and connect. Sounds like it's a perfect place for us. Here's a message from the founder. Hi, I'm Zachary Davis. I'm the host of two podcasts, Ministry of Ideas, which explores the philosophy behind everyday concepts, and Writ Large, a new podcast about the books that change the world. I love educational podcasts. I love listening to them and talking about them. I want everyone to have that chance. And so I've built a new platform called Lyceum, which makes it easy to discover great educational podcasts and have conversations about them. There are more than a million podcasts out there. We've done the hard work of sifting through them and finding only the very best education shows to listen to. Shows like the one you're listening to right now. So if you love learning, Download Lyceum today on the App Store or Google Play, or visit us at lyceum.fm. That's L-Y-C-E-U-M dot F-M. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Jeffrey Supran. He's a research associate in the Department of the History of Science at Harvard University. Working alongside Dr. Naomi Oreskes, he investigates the history of global warming politics, particularly the climate communications, denial, and delay tactics of fossil fuel interests. In addition, he's a physicist and received his PhD in materials science and engineering from MIT. Jeffrey conducted the first-ever peer-reviewed analysis of ExxonMobil's 40-year history of climate change communications, which demonstrates that the company has misled the public. Although we've heard many times over that the fossil fuel industry has been telling us lies about climate change, this interview is truly an eye-opener about just how extensive their efforts really have been in muddying the waters and sowing doubt about climate science. We found that whereas roughly 80% of the company's peer-reviewed academic literature accepted, acknowledged the basic reality that climate change is real and human cause, basically the same fraction, about 80% of their advertorials, their public communications, promoted doubt on that very same matter. So what we'd essentially empirically demonstrated was a systematic discrepancy between what they were saying privately and in academic circles and what they were saying loudly, publicly, into the New York Times. We discuss Exxon's invention of the advertorial and the industry's ongoing climate denial campaign and share where you can find trustworthy climate reporting. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you conducted a study called Assessing ExxonMobil's Climate Change Communications 1977 to 2014 to ascertain if ExxonMobil was misleading the general public about climate change. Why did you decide to do the study? ExxonMobil and other fossil fuel companies have been under increasing scrutiny from several fronts, investigations and indeed lawsuits by some attorneys general, at some point the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, indeed some lawsuits by some of Exxon's own shareholders so and employees. So basically increasing pressure and questions on the company all around a central question, which is have Exxon's communications about climate change in one way or another misled the public, their shareholders or anyone else, including ways that might have broken the law. So we essentially set out as academics to do work that might help inform those questions. 
they actually made a bunch of their documents available yes. so that you could read everything for yourself, which I thought was really interesting. Right. This was actually a strange situation where the context for this is that in 2015, some investigative journalists at the LA Times and Inside Climate News uncovered some internal documents from ExxonMobil from the 70s, 80s that showed and indicated that the company had early knowledge about the dangers of climate change. But ExxonMobil's reaction to this, of course, was to say they hadn't done anything wrong. The journalists had cherry-picked the information. And they kind of went on a rant on their website. And they literally said, read the documents. They said, quote, read the documents and make up your own mind. Um, and so I just started as a postdoctoral research fellow at Harvard University with Professor Naomi Oreskes, who is the preeminent expert in the world on the history of climate denial. So over the course of a year, we read the documents, we analyzed them according to established uh, social science methods called content analysis, which is basically exactly what it sounds like. The result was the first ever peer-reviewed academic analysis of this 40-year history of climate communications by ExxonMobil. Um, so this paper we're talking about. So before we talk about the findings, tell us a little bit about the methodology. You explained it briefly, but right. give a little bit more detail. So one good way to think about it is that positions by someone, some communicator on climate change, can kind of be thought to fall along three axes. Is it real and human-caused? Is it serious? And is it solvable? And so it's no coincidence that climate denial generally takes the form of one of sort of the opposite of those three forms. So it's not real, it's not human-caused, it's not serious, and it's not solvable. So what are the positions that each document takes on the question of, is it real and human-caused? What positions does it take on, is it serious? And what positions does it take on, is it solvable? And what we did was essentially apply this in a systematic, rigorous way, statistically significant, across the couple hundred documents that we were dealing with. And that led us to our conclusions. All right. So tell us about your conclusion. Yeah. So... What we did really was to look not just at these internal documents, which seemed to be suggesting they knew a bit about climate change, but we also looked at the flip side, which is what was ExxonMobil saying to the general public about climate change. And we did this looking at one specific kind of document, so-called advertorials. So these are paid editorial-style advertisements taken out by Mobil and then ExxonMobil on the right-hand bottom corner of the op-ed page of the New York Times. This is one of the largest propaganda campaigns in the history of modern advertising. And every now and then, they took out an advert specifically on climate change. So what we did was pull these out and analyze those and compare their positions on climate change to those of these internal memos. And what we found was a very systematic trend, which is the more public ExxonMobil's climate change communications became, the more they communicated doubt about climate change as real and human caused, about it as serious and as it is solvable. So for example, we found that whereas roughly 80% of the company's peer-reviewed academic literature accepted, acknowledged the basic reality that climate change is real and human cause. Basically the same fraction, about 80% of their advertorials, their public communications, promoted doubt on that very same matter. So what we'd essentially empirically demonstrated was a systematic discrepancy between what they were saying privately and in academic circles and what they were saying loudly, publicly into the New York Times. So that led us to our, our bottom line conclusion, which is ExxonMobil misled the public about the basic realities of climate change and its implications. I think in a way we know this already, right? But did you discover in the documents that you read a justification for why they did this? 
Yeah, so this was not an accident. <laughs> this was the manifestation of a massive public relations strategy. Since not long after the Second World War, the fossil fuel industry began to study CO2 pollution. And by the late 1950s, 1959 in particular, it explicitly knew about the potential global warming dangers of its products. The documents we looked at show definitively that through the 70s and 80s, they developed this understanding to quite profound and precise degrees. And rather than warning the public or taking action, essentially what they did was remain silent. You know, Why would they want to alert the world to the dangers of their products? That was until the year 1988, the year that Jim Hansen, NASA's chief climate scientist at the time, testified to Congress that we were at least 99% sure now that global warming was happening in human cause. This was a, a moment when suddenly for the first time, climate change hit the front page of every newspaper in the world. And the reaction from these companies, unfortunately, was to take the low road. And we see this through these internal documents. One memo from the early 90s reads, victory will be achieved when average citizens and the media recognize uncertainties in climate science. That's a precise quotation. Another one talks about, quote, emphasize the uncertainties in climate science. We have these internal strategy memos. It's a smoking gun that says the public is getting you know, concerned about this. Policies may be developed that constrain our business, uh, that threaten our business. And so we are going to confuse the public about the realities of this science using precisely the strategy playbook of Big Tobacco. I think one of the things that's very confusing is that at the same time, Exxon's scientists continue to actually produce peer-reviewed papers that are High it seems high quality above mm -hmm. board and, and prove exactly That's right. that it's real. So how, how does that work? How does it work with those scientists? <laughs> right, yeah. So actually some of the internal memos discuss this too, why they were doing this research. You know, they needed to keep an ear to the ground to keep track of what was going on in the scientific community. They boasted internally about how they had unprecedented access compared to other fossil fuel companies into these meetings, these government meetings, these academic conferences. They knew precisely what the status of the science was, the status of the policies were, and they talk about how they can carry this knowledge to their executives in order to guide and inform the company's business decisions. It makes sense. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. <laughs> we really, frankly, are talking about a very small group of you know, very respected and diligent scientists working for ExxonMobil. One of the really amazing things that we discovered with this analysis was that the entire corpus of ExxonMobil's peer-reviewed research was all conducted by one single principal scientist. His name is Dr. Harun Kejki, and he continues to conduct research to this day. As far as everyone has, has told me, he is a highly respected scientist. The work he conducts is, is high quality. But unfortunately, it has only really been manipulated by the company as a greenwashing tool to try to assuage concerns about what we and others have uncovered. So what is the most interesting thing that you discovered that you didn't expect when you were reading these documents? Well, certainly the, the thing about Heron Keshki and the fact that this was basically a one-man band was one of them. The other was that, as I mentioned, it was 1988, the year when the world began to mobilize on climate change and 
It was supposed to be the year that action was taken. And for that very reason, it's no coincidence, it was the year that this industry mobilized and began to orchestrate a massive campaign to attack truth and science in order to delay action. And so I suppose at a very fundamental level, what was shocking about this to me is for my entire life, the entire 30 years that I've been alive, there's been this orchestrated campaign to undermine progress and potentially endanger and jeopardize the people and places I love and, and that of everyone in my generation. So that's been quite a mobilizing realization for me, no pun intended, in that it's really been a call to action for me to dig deeper on this and essentially try to speak this truth to power. Well, you're also an activist. So what is the activism that you do that hangs together with the research that you do? I've kind of gradually, first begrudgingly, but now proudly adopted this badge of, of scientist activist. In academia, traditionally, there's a firewall between scholarship and activism. And actually, this has partly been a consequence of these campaigns we're talking about for decades now, since Rachel Carson in the 60s and so on. Academics, scholars have... I think been almost disciplined by the attacks that they've received by special interest to just keep their heads down, shut up and, and do the work and not be seen as political, not be seen as anything but impartial. But I, you know, through this work and, and, and other things have gradually come to the realization that I'm not defined simply by you know, my PhD and by being a scientist, I'm also a, a citizen and a young person. As scientists before us have demonstrated, have shown us Speaking truth to power, standing up for what we believe in is a civic duty, especially as scientists. You know, Einstein, one of my favorite quotes of his is, um, those who have the privilege to know have the duty to act. I've gradually developed both that knowledge and that sense of a duty to act. So that manifests firstly in a realization about halfway through grad school that where I was doing my PhD, MIT, and other universities, whilst they were, you know, paying scientists like me to try to develop renewable energy technologies to address the climate crisis, at the very same time, they are also investing hundreds of millions of dollars in the fossil fuel industry that, as we've been discussing at length, has orchestrated campaigns to undermine the very th progress we're trying to achieve. This discrepancy led me and other fellow students and faculty to launch a multi-year campaign urging MIT to divest, to de-invest its $14 billion endowment from the fossil fuel industry. That was my sort of gateway into activism, to civic engagement. So I wear these two hats and it's not always trivial, but I believe that the stakes are high enough that it's worth, it's worth dealing with the trickiness and, and getting over it because it's very rewarding to both work to uncover truth as a scientist, but also then speak that truth to power. Mm -hmm. So as an everyday person, I think uh, you're almost powerless to understand half the time when you see something printed in the op-ed pages and it's an advertorial. I mean, that almost sounds Orwellian. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah, right. By the way, um, Exxon invented the advertorial ah. in 1972. So it didn't just utilize it, it invented it. It then convinced the New York Times to initiate it. Since starting in 1972, it took out one of those advertorials every Thursday for about 29 years. They even got a discounted rate from the Times of about $31,000 per advertorial. They covered every topic under the sun, but climate change was one of them. And as I said, this is one of the largest modern day propaganda campaigns in history. We're talking about serious money, serious 
campaigns here. This is really um, what uh, journalist Amy Westervelt calls the madmen of climate change. This is a lot about manipulating people the same way that Big Tobacco lied to us about the health risks of smoking. Well, that was very surprising. 29 years. Yeah. That is a very serious commitment. The academics who were studying these started to call them every Thursday ads because they were literally every Thursday. I think at some point in the early 2000s, they switched to every other Thursday (laughs) because presumably they were switching to more modern forms of campaign to digital advertising and stuff. Sometimes I'll go onto the New York Times and see a banner ad along the top for ExxonMobil's algae biofuel research. And I'll flick back through the old advertorials and adverts I studied, and you'll see they were taking out the same ads 10 years ago, just in print form. They just switched to digital form now. And there are serious considerations here about the role of media. What are the responsibilities of the Times, the Post, Vox, you know, the even very progressive outlets who you'd assume would be on the right side of this stuff are playing a role passive or active in facilitating some of this mis- and disinformation. It can be quite tricky sometimes when you open a newspaper or you online or whatever to know what you're getting and who you're getting it from and, and what it might mean. So what's your advice for the everyday person in order to be able to have a habit of discerning the truth? Oh, that's a big question. Well, so I think developing trusted sources is certainly important. So I'll I'll talk about climate change. As much as I've been bashing the Times a bit, the New York Times, actually, the journalists there do incredible climate reporting, some of the best in the world. Inside Climate News, who I mentioned, who broke the ExxonMobil stuff, they are targeted journalists just on climate and energy, a brilliant outlet open access. The Guardian is one of the trend-setting newspapers in the world on climate and energy reporting. And obviously there are others. But yeah, I think developing a trust in certain sources is important. Being questioning, especially of the sources, you know, you have to sometimes dig a little and ask who are these talking heads we're hearing from. Sometimes a quick Google even will reveal their funding sources or the organizations they work for. Unfortunately, the fossil fuel interests have become extremely clever at taking a step back and using third-party organizations, third-party spokespeople to do the bidding on their behalf. So it is tricky. There's so much information all happening at the same time. It's very difficult to be vigilant all the time. Sometimes you're in the car, you're driving, you're hearing this on the radio, you're not going to be Googling this person and you think, oh, what was that thing? That's interesting. But it sits in your brain. It does, right. There is a, a subconscious influence. I forgot to mention one particular organization. It's a nonprofit called Climate Feedback. They are an organization founded by climate scientists and run by climate scientists. And their dedicated job is to peer reviewing climate reporting in the news. They will pick up particularly controversial articles and have multiple climate experts, some of the foremost experts in the world, in fact, review these articles and literally grade them. So you can go to Climate Feedback and if you've heard something particularly controversial, hopefully they'll have covered it. If not, I think they're receptive to proposals that they review other you know, specific stories. So I think another important thing that people can bring to climate news is the understanding that although we often hear that this is a very complicated problem, it's very difficult, the reality is at a fundamental level, climate change is very simple. It's based on basic physics developed during the 1800s. It's essentially a very simple story about how burning fossil fuels causes warming and that warming is dangerous to us and we need to get off fossil fuels. Everything beyond that is 
to some extent, rhetoric. And we have most of the technologies we need to address this crisis. The true bottleneck to this problem is now political will. And it was actually that realization that led me to sort of retrain away from renewable energy research as a physicist towards this applied social science research, towards studying the stranglehold that the fossil fuel industry has on public understanding, and in fact, on American democracy and science-based decision-making. If people can kind of bring the mindset that it is absolutely incontrovertible science, that the fundamental business model of the fossil fuel industry is incompatible with the science of stopping global warming, I think that can help you filter through some of the noise, through some of the rhetoric, and get to the core, which is that we need to get off this stuff and these days, the propaganda has become very sophisticated, trying to find ways, any ways, to delay action. Journalist Alex Steffen calls it predatory delay, which I think is a very profound term. Bringing that mindset to things is one other way that can help people kind of discern fact from fiction. That's very well put. So I'm really interested in your change <laughs> from being a physicist and now basically being a social scientist right. with a background in physics. So. What do you think is actually going to help us build the political will once and for all to stop burning fossil fuels? Right. We all belong to various so-called pillars of support constituencies that either hold up and sustain or challenge the status quo. For example, you know, I as a young person, as a scientist, my pillars of support are, are things like the academic community. My brother is a, a drummer in a band, so he belongs to the musician community. We all belong to pillars of support, and we can each work to chip away at those pillars, thereby perhaps pushing us towards what we call social tipping points, at which maybe just suddenly some of those pillars start to give way. And a bit like a house of cards, we suddenly destabilize these incumbent status quo interests, these fossil fuel incumbents, and the whole thing comes tumbling down. Fundamentally, that's what everybody needs to be doing. People often ask me, what is the most important thing I can be doing as an individual? And the answer is very simple. It's to stop being an individual, and it's to start acting collectively. And that's essentially what I'm describing here, finding ways to compound the impact of your actions. Too much of the propaganda efforts of, of fossil fuel interests have been targeted at individualizing the climate problem, at making us feel guilty and hypocritical about the individual actions that we take. We all are in, to some extent complicit, but we are passively guilty. You know, We are literally born into a system in which we have no choice but to rely on mostly fossil fuel-based energy. Some of these people, this small group of people we're talking about, are actively guilty because they have worked, they have orchestrated campaigns to delay action and essentially lock us into this system where we have no choice. If people can get past the propaganda that makes them worry about their individual actions as much and focus more on ways to work together to challenge these incumbent status quo, that's how we achieve the political momentum we need. That's a great answer. What is the source of your passion? Why are you doing this work? It's essentially to protect the people and places I love. I never grew up as a tree-hugging hippie, an environmentalist. I was educated as a scientist, as a physicist, and until kind of halfway through grad school, I was a pretty straight-shooting scientist. To be honest, it's embarrassing how little interest I had in politics and the environments. And I think what really changed for me was this realization 
that the very raison d'etre of, of, of science, you know, truth and knowledge, these things were being attacked so that a small group of people could profit massively, even though it endangered the lives and livelihoods of millions, even of billions of people around the world. And so for me, it, it's been a combination of both a positive desire to protect things, but also what behavioral psychologists call hot cognition. Basically, I got pissed off, if I'm allowed to say that. This is anger, which I have then sort of mobilized into action. We all make decisions based on slightly different things, but fundamentally, we're value-driven creatures. Realizing that the climate crisis threatens most of the things that we hold dear, for me and most of my friends, that's what gets us up every day and makes me feel that what I'm doing isn't really work or research. It's kind of a cooling. Because, you know, as a scientist, we're trained to search out the biggest, most important, hardest problems to solve. And climate change is the mother of all problems. So it's scary work, but it's also very rewarding. That's awesome. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? Well, as much as I don't want to be the guy to end on a bummer, um, I must be honest that I'm not intrinsically hopeful. You know, that's to say, I don't believe right now that we're on the right track. We're, we're not, in fact, and it would be mis misrepresentative to say that we are. And I'm definitely not willing to just put humanity's future in the hands of fate. You know, I think it's important to be honest about all this right now because, because false hope has indeed caused a lot of the inertia that we now have on climate action. Kate Marvel, the climate scientist at NASA, and the writer Mary Hegler, they've both spoken much more eloquently than I can about all this and about how what we need right now is courage and action rather than hope. You know, that's to say we need the resolve to do well, to do the best we can without the assurance of a happy ending. So to that end, I try not to get too caught up on, on how hopeful I am on any given day. You know, I just wake up each morning and ask myself, how can I expose the truth about the fossil fuel industry today? How can I use my research and my voice to inform and inspire people to take action? And so while I'm not yet hopeful, what sure as hell makes me more optimistic is seeing millions more people now getting up every morning and, and doing that and things like that. So, you know, hope, I think, is what we'll have when the hard work is over. For now, let's not sit around and just hope. Let's mobilize. And on that more positive note, I think I'll quit while I'm ahead. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I like Jeffy's raw answer to my last question. Now is the time for courage and action and to expose the truth about fossil fuels. It's rather shocking just how much we've been manipulated. But I do think that a lot of people already know the truth. They just don't know how to engage on this issue. How can we possibly upend the status quo? After all, we're born into a system that is deeply tied to the consumption of fossil fuel. Jeffrey's recommendation, just like our previous guests from this season, Leah Stokes and Bill McKibben, is to work together for maximum impact. We taped this interview a few months ago, well before the pandemic hit us, and well before the massive drop in fossil fuel consumption. We're releasing this episode the week after the May contracts for West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil went below zero. This means that the buyer would be getting paid to take it off the seller's hands. Will prices stay this low? My thought is, if you can't stay in business with low prices, it's probably time to get out. Instead, maybe now is the time to double down on investing in free energy sources like wind and solar. This concludes our season on climate change. We spoke to 13 amazing people who are passionate and dedicated to our well-being, 
on this planet. We learned so much about what we can do as individuals and that the real answer to decarbonization is solid public policy. The most important thing is to elect leaders who support clean energy and work together to realize an energy future that is free of fossil fuels. Next week, our guest is Thomas O. Melia. He's Washington Director at PEN America, an organization that protects free expression in the United States and around the world. Previously, as a fellow with the Human Freedom Initiative at the George W. Bush Institute, he led efforts to reinvigorate American leadership in defense of human rights and democracy. It's always a problem when free speech is suppressed because we don't know the reality of what's going on around us. And in a time of a public health emergency where people need to know what's safe and unsafe in terms of where you go or how you behave or what kind of medicine might be useful. If people are afraid to speak their minds, then the public health is in danger. So that's the most conspicuous danger in this kind of a moment. We discuss how various governments across the globe are using the cover of COVID-19 to curtail civil liberties, suppress free speech, and arrest political opponents. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Zumbu. Additional production by Brooke Sayan. Listen to us online at futurehindsight.com or your favorite streaming service. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.